Well, it's good to be in Cerritos again. I come here once a year, and I always look forward to it. Well, uh, this morning, we want to continue our fellowship on the reality of the body of Christ. The last two major conferences we had were on living in the reality of the body of Christ. So this is what this message covers from from a particular angle. Uh, we shared this on Wednesday night. The trainees uh, uh, are familiar with this outline, but I hope you've received something new this morning, Amen. something new and fresh. You know, whenever we exercise our spirit, everything is new. Amen. Nothing is old, right? So um, let me read the title first, and then the outline, I believe, will unpack the title. You'll see what the title means. It says, living in the reality of the body of Christ, according to the bird's eye view of the reality in Jesus in the gospel of Mark. We need to have a bird's eye view. That means, you know, you're a bird and you have a bird's eye view of, of the reality in Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we want to talk about the Gospel of Mark. Remember that uh, in the four Gospels, they are four biographies of the Lord Jesus. Uh, in Matthew, we have Christ as the King's Savior. In Mark, we have Christ as the Slave Savior. In Luke, we have Christ as the Man-Savior. And in John, we have Christ as the God-Savior. Now, these four biographies, these four pictures of Christ, are also seen in Ezekiel chapter 1 with the four living creatures. It's quite amazing. The four living creatures have four faces. They have the face of a lion, which is Christ as the king's savior. They have the face of an ox, which is Christ as the slave savior. They have the face of a man, which is Christ as the man savior. Finally, they have the face of an eagle, which is Christ as the God savior. Saint, there is an eagle in our spirit, a divine and mystical eagle who soars over every problem. Now, um, when we use the term the reality in Jesus, I want us to be impressed that the reality in Jesus is the reality of the body of Christ. Is the reality of the body of Christ. Now, we get this from Ephesians 4, uh, verse 20. Actually, if you go back from verse 20 and you read verses 18 and 19, Paul is very burdened for the Ephesians that they would no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Saints, it's possible for us to be believers and walk the same as unbelievers. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be in the vanity of our mind. Don't be in your mind this morning. I'm not saying don't use your mind. But don't. You need to be in your spirit. Then your mind will be enlightened. Your mind will be renewed, and your mind will be possessed by the Spirit. So we don't want to walk in the vanity of the mind, 
And Paul says in Ephesians 4.20, he says, you did not so learn Christ. You didn't learn Christ in this way. It says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him as the reality is in Jesus. So we need to learn Christ as the reality is in Jesus. Now, it doesn't say learn about Christ. Learn about Christ is doctrinal. We have to learn Christ, to learn Christ. Like uh, after, uh, after we're done here, we'll have a love feast, right? And I, I don't know the, the names of the food because, you know, the different kinds of Chinese food. I think it's a Cantonese. Yeah, Cantonese, all kinds, all kinds. One time I was with a brother uh, in the Far East. I said, what am I eating? He said, don't ask, you'll enjoy it more. <laughs> so anyway, when we eat, we're not going to learn about the food. We're going to learn the food. Amen. See, that's experiential, to learn Christ. To learn Christ according to the reality that's in Jesus. Now, the reality in Jesus, what is, what is the reality in Jesus? The reality in Jesus is the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. Say that again. The reality in Jesus is the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. He wants this life that he lived in the four Gospels to be reproduced in us, to be, de- to be duplicated in us, to be Xeroxed into our being. Then when it's duplicated in us, it becomes the reality of the body of Christ. So Jesus lived a life in which he did everything in God, with God, for God, by God, and through God. Isn't that wonderful? There was a man on this earth who did everything in God, with God, by God, through God, and for God. God was in his living, and he was one with God. That is the reality in Jesus. That is the reality in Jesus. So we want to learn Christ according to this reality, according to this reality in Jesus. And we want to see the reality in Jesus We want to have a bird's eye view of the reality of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark, of course, is not the first book in in the New Testament, but it was the first book written in the New New Testament. The first book written. And um, all good expositors agree that the Gospel of Mark was was, uh, composed by Peter because Mark was Peter's spiritual son. We'll see this a little later. Mark was Peter's spiritual son. So probably Peter dictated this gospel to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And Mark wrote it down. So it's very, very, we'll see. We'll see that it's very special. There's two words in this. I'll just, I'll tell you, I won't tell you the two words yet. There's two words in this gospel that aren't in any other gospel. And these two words show that Peter dictated this gospel. And when we come to it, I'll, I'll point it out to you. 
Okay, now, um, I'll just read a few of these verses. You know, in Mark 4, 23-25, it says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With what measure you measure, it shall be measured to you, and it shall be added to you. For he who has, it shall be given to him. And he who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Now, what does this mean? This means the measure that can be given to us by the Lord depends on the measure of our hearing. Depends on the measure of our hearing. So we need to pray, Lord, give me an ear to hear this morning. What you're speaking to the churches. Uh, Increase my hearing of you. You know, uh, Brother Nee tells this story of two brothers who were walking down the street in Shanghai. And, of course, the street was very busy. They had streetcars back then. And uh, lots of noise. And this brother said to the other brother, he goes, oh, do you hear that cricket? That cricket? He goes, what? You hear a cricket? You know, there's all this noise. You're a cricket? He said, come with me. Come with me. So he went to the wall, and he said, put your ear to the wall. And sure enough, there was a cricket chirping. There was a cricket chirping. Now, how did, how did this brother know that there was a cricket in the wall chirping in the midst of all this sound? The reason why was he was an entomologist. He studied insects. So he had an ear for insects. Listen, we need to have an ear for the Lord Jesus. We just want to hear him this morning. Amen. Now I'll read another portion to you. It says the disciples, this is Mark 8, 22 through 26, it says the disciples came to Bethsaida and they brought them a blind man and entreated him to touch him. And he took hold of the hand of the blind man and led him forth outside the village. Many times, if we want to see something of the Lord and we want to hear the Lord, The Lord leads us to a private place, to a private place where we can pray, where we can deal with the Lord. So he led him outside the village. It says, and he spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them as trees walking. Now, that's not good enough, right? If I saw you all as trees here. Uh, something's wrong. I need a, a further touch from the Lord. So uh, what happened was, it says, then he again laid his hands upon his eyes, and the man looked intently and was restored. And I like this. It says, and he began to see all things clearly. We need to pray, Lord, touch me again and again so that I see all things clearly. I want to see you clearly. I want to see your economy clearly. I want to see your plan clearly. I want to see your heart's desire clearly. I want to see all things clearly. Now, if we're going to see all things clearly, according to these verses in Mark 8, we need a private and intimate time with the Lord. We need a private time with the Lord every day. We need an intimate time with the Lord every day so that we can receive his infusion for a further recovery of our sight. A further recovery of our sight. All right, now, uh, 
Well, I'll just read these verses to you. They're in the scripture reading. We'll come to them as we go through the outline. In Mark 6, 45 through 52, this was right after he fed the 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So there were thousands of people there that he fed with five loaves and two fish. Now, if that were us, we would have said, wow, let's have some testimonies. This was, this was a great miracle, right? Let's remain in the issue of this miracle and, and share with one another, you know, how this happened and what our experience was. But the Lord didn't do that. It says, immediately he compelled his disciples to step into the boat and go before to the other side toward Bethsaida while he sent the crowd away. So he sent the disciples away and he sent the crowd away. And after he said farewell to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. So he wanted to have more time to pray privately to the Father. So if he, he wanted to have more time, how much do we need more time? We need to pray, Lord, give me more time to pray privately to you. So that I can be one with you to usher in your kingdom with all the saints as the reality of your body. Now, it says that uh, he went away to the mountain to pray, and when evening fell, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. It says, and seeing them, listen to this, distressed as they rowed, as as they rowed, R-O-W-E-D. They were distressed as they rowed, for the wind was contrary to them. Listen, many times in our in our Christian life, in our church life, we're rowing, right? We're uh, we're on our journey, on our Christian life journey, on our church life journey. We want to finish our course, like Paul said in Acts twenty twenty four. He says, "I want to finish my course that the Lord has set for me as a member of the body of Christ." But when we when we take this course that the Lord has preordained for us, many times. We're rowing, but we're distressed as we row. Now, has, you don't have to raise your hand. Has anyone in here been distressed as you rowed? I think everyone would raise their hand if I would ask them. If you're distressed as you row, that shows you're on the right path. That shows you're on the right path. So it says, they were distressed as they rowed, and the wind was contrary to them. Listen, when you take the Lord's way, and you take his God-ordained way for your life, uh, the wind will be contrary to you. The wind will not be at your back. You know, just everything, no problem. The wind will be contrary to you. Will be con- the environment will be contrary to you. We have, we, have, we have to realize this. But it says, He came toward them about the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, the fourth watch of the night in Roman time was approximately from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So he came to them the fourth watch of the night. So don't give up. At the darkest time, at the fourth watch of the night, Jesus is on his way. Jesus is on his way. It says that he intended to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were startled. But immediately, immediately, let's see. 
let's see, they all saw him were startled, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I. Isn't that a wonderful word? Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he went up unto them into the boat, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly astonished in themselves beyond measure, for they did not understand concerning the loaves, but rather their heart was hardened. We don't want to be like that. But what I want to point out to you is, uh, this is in volume 10 of the Collective Works of Watchmen. Uh, and you, there's many ways we can look at this portion of the word. But one way we can look at it is this. When the Lord went up into the mountain to pray, that's a picture of his ascension. He's in ascension right now praying for us. And we're rowing. We're rowing. And it's possible we can be distressed as we row. It's possible that the wind can be contrary to us. But he is praying for us. He is praying for us all the time. And he's praying for us in this meeting. That we would see something new of him. Hear something fresh from him. And receive his fresh dispensing for the building up of the body of Christ. Now we'll come to this later. Now in Mark 9, 7 through 9, uh, you remember the Lord took them up to the mount, to, to Mount Hermon, which is the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John with him to see the kingdom of God coming in its power. And uh, all of a sudden, the Lord was there, and he was conversing with Moses and Elijah. Just think if you were there, and you saw the Lord conversing with Moses and Elijah. Don't be too hard on Peter. Uh, Peter said something foolish, of course. Peter always would say something that was outlandish. That's why I like Peter, uh, because he failed, but he always stuck with the Lord. But anyway, uh, it says, then a cloud appeared over, Peter said this. Peter said, Lord, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And let's remain here. And Peter was, Peter was frightened. He didn't even know what he was saying. And so when he said this, it says a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and this voice said, This is my son, the beloved. Hear him. Amen. Saints, we are here to hear him. We're not, we're not here to hear anyone else, hear anything else. We are here this morning to hear our wonderful slave Savior. Amen. Isn't it a mercy that we can actually hear the voice of the slave Savior, of Christ as a slave Savior? It's absolutely wonderful. It says, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only with them. I like these two words. Now, these two words aren't the two words I told you about previously. But I like these two words, Jesus only. When you come in the Lord's recovery, you just get one thing, Jesus only. That's enough. If you have Jesus, you have the presence of Jesus, you have everything. You have everything you need. If you don't have his presence, you lose everything. So we want the presence of Jesus. We are here in the Lord's recovery for Jesus only. Amen. All right, now in Mark 10:45, it says the son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, um, saints, what I would like to point out to you here before we get into the outline is that, uh, you know, I always took this verse as I need to be one with the Lord to serve others, to serve others. And that's true. That's true. We need to be one with the Lord to serve others. The happiest people in the church life are the ones that serve the saints, the ones that serve the saints. And I remember I told the saints this when I first came in the church life. uh, Everybody invited me over for dinner. Maybe that's why I'm too big now. But anyway, (laughs) they all invited me over for dinner. Everyone, The, the saints surrounded me. I was afraid. You know what I mean? I said, who are these people? You know, I had to take down the invitations. And, uh, you know, when you're a new one, all the saints love you no matter what you do. You get up and share and say, say anything. You just say, Lord Jesus, I love you, but I don't know you that well, Lord. And sometimes I don't like you that much. The saints will go, Amen. <laughs> The saints will, will, because when a baby, when you have a baby, it doesn't matter what comes out of the baby's mouth, right? It says, goo, goo, gaga. You go, amen. <laughs> and you try to say dada, and he's not saying dada yet, right? I tried to make my boys say dada first, but they wouldn't do it. I'd say dada. they go, mama. <laughs> but anyway, um... It is true that we need to be one with the Lord to serve others. Eventually, the Lord told me, I said, Lord, um, the saints don't invite me over like they used to. What's wrong? And uh, I just got married. And the Lord spoke to me, you know, anointed, the anointing kind of moved within me. And the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord said, Ed, you're not a baby anymore. You need to invite the saints over to your place. Now, you have the saints over it. So Ruthie and I began to have the saints over at our place, and we were greatly blessed to have our home open to the Lord. But now, I, now we have to look at these verses from another angle. Uh, the Bible tells us that the Son of Man served us in the past through his death. And that's in Mark 10.45. Then in Luke 22, 26, and 27, it says this. He says, I am in your midst as one who serves. I am in your midst as one who serves. So, saints, my point here is this. We need to allow the Lord to serve us. The Lord wants to serve you this morning. You can't serve others unless you let the Lord serve you first. See, he serves you with himself and then you can serve others with him. So he says, I'm in your midst as one who serves. That's Luke 22, 26, and 27. Then in Luke 12, 37, uh, he says in the millennial kingdom, he says, you will sit down at table, at the table in the millennial kingdom, and I will come and serve you. So he served us in the past on the cross. He's serving us in the, pre- in the present, in the church life, in this meeting. And he will serve us in the future for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Eventually, for eternity, he will serve us. But saints, you can't serve others 
If you don't allow the Lord to serve you first, ask the Lord. If you have a need, ask the Lord, Lord, serve me with this. Serve me with your presence, Lord. Serve me with yourself as peace so that I can minister you as peace and bring your presence to others. Okay, now we'll come to the outline. It says, the desire of God's heart is that the reality in Jesus, the God-man living of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels, would be duplicated in the many members of Christ's body by the spirit of reality to become the reality of the body of Christ, the highest peak in God's economy. So the reality of the body of Christ is the highest peak in God's economy. And we want this reality in Jesus, which is the reality of the body of Christ, we want this reality in Jesus duplicated in us, Xeroxed in us, so that our living becomes exactly the same as that God-man living we see in the Gospels. Okay, now we come to A. A says the reality of the body of Christ is the corporate living of the perfected God-man who live the divine life of their new man by denying the natural life of their old man according to the model of Christ as the first God-man. I love the composition of that, uh, of that point. So we need to live a God-man life by the divine life. We need to deny our natural life. We have a God-man life in our spirit. And we need to live that life Live a God-man life by the divine life in our spirit. Now, if we do this, uh, this will bring in a new revival among us. This will bring in a new revival among us. If all of us live a God-man life by the divine life, we'll all be revived. Am I right? When you, when you, uh, by the Lord's mercy, whenever you live by another life, the divine life, you're revived. And when we talk about a new revival... We're not talking about the revivals in Christendom. We're talking about a revival that will bring the Lord back. That will bring the Lord back. Now, um, this reality of the body of Christ, which is the living of the perfected God-man, we need to build up a model of people, of a group of people, who live the God-man life by the divine life. Now listen to what Brother Lee said here. This, This was really striking to me. He says, such a model, such a model will be the greatest revival in the history of the church to bring the Lord back. So it's the model, it's the model of people living the divine, living a God-man life by the divine life who, who become, we become the greatest revival in the history of the church to bring the Lord back. That's what we want. Okay, now I'll come to 1 Peter 2.21. There's a lot of verses here, but I'll come down to 1 Peter 2.21. It says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered on your behalf, leaving you a model so that you would follow in his steps. So he left us a model that we would follow in his steps. Now this does not mean that you say, what would Jesus do in this situation? You shouldn't think like that. Uh, we need to, we need to, we need to eat Christ as our spiritual food. According to John six fifty seven, he says, "He who eats me shall live because of me." 
So when we eat him spontaneously, we live because of him. He becomes the, the, the cause of our living. He becomes the element of, of our living. He becomes the source of our living. But this Greek word for model, he left us a model so that we would follow in his steps. If you look at the recovery version, uh, it says the word model there is a writing copy, a writing copy. Where when, when you're a young person in those days, those days or maybe even in these days, and you want to learn how to write, you have a writing copy put down first. Then you have another piece of paper put down over that. And then you trace the letters according to what's under that piece of paper. So what you wind up with is an exact duplicate, an exact copy of that writing copy, of that model. So this is what the Lord is doing in us. He's writing himself into us to make us the living letters of Christ so that people can read Christ in our being, so that people can know Christ in our being. So um, he wants us to be a Xerox copy of the God-man living of Jesus in the four Gospels. Now, B says the reality of the body of Christ is the spirit of reality who is the spirit of Jesus mingled with our spirit. The spirit of Jesus includes the reality in Jesus, the God-man living in Jesus. God-man living of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we have the spirit of Jesus in our spirit. You know, we have a hymn in our hymnal that I really like. There's a man in the glory. What number is that? Five oh what? 505, right? I still remember in a training, my seat number was 505. And I said, there's a man in the glory in this seat. There's a man in the glory. But there's also a man in our spirit. This man in the glory is a man in our spirit. And this, this spirit is the spirit of a God man. It's the spirit of his human life glorified into union with the divine life. Now, C says, when we live in the mingled spirit, we are learning Christ according to the reality in Jesus by the spirit of reality, according to his model as the slave savior in the gospel of Mark, so that his biography becomes our history. Now, saints, isn't this remarkable? The biography that we see in the gospels needs, becomes our history, becomes our history. Now, where you can see this, is in Romans 11, where, it's, where it talks about the grafted life. That we were, once we were branches in the, uh, in, in the wild olive tree. We used to be wild. Maybe you see a brother sitting here, he looks nice. But 30 years ago, he was wild. <laughs> well, before we got saved, we were branches of that wild olive tree, which is fallen Adam, right? But when we got saved and when we believed into Christ, we got cut off from that, cult, that wild olive tree and we got grafted into Christ as the cultivated olive tree. So now we are branches of the cultivated olive tree. And as branches of the cultivated olive tree, the bi- okay, the biography of that olive tree becomes the history becomes, I'm sorry, the biography of that olive tree becomes the history of the branch that was grafted into it. Do you see this? We've been grafted into Christ 
So his biography becomes our history. Becomes our history. Then it says the living of the body of Christ as the new man should be exactly the same as the living of Jesus revealed in the gospel of Mark. Should be exactly the same as the living of Jesus revealed in the gospel of Mark. Okay, now, um, saints, I want us to remember this, that the Lord's recovery is possible only in our mingled spirit. The Lord's recovery is possible only in our mingled spirit. This is why we talk about our mingled spirit so much. Because there's no recovery if we don't live in our mingled spirit. That's why in Ephesians, where it talks about the reality of the body of Christ, it mentions the mingled spirit in every chapter. In Ephesians 1.17, you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In Ephesians 2.22, you have a dwelling place of God in spirit. In Ephesians 3.5, you have the revelation of the body revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in spirit. In Ephesians 3.16, you have our being strengthened into the inner man. And the inner man is our spirit with God's life as its life. In Ephesians 4, verse 23, it says we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. Which means we want our mingled spirit to spread into our mind, to occupy our mind, to possess our mind, to saturate our mind, and to be mingled with our mind so that it becomes, this mingled spirit becomes the spirit of our mind. Spirit of our mind. Then we have Ephesians 5.18, which says, be filled in spirit. Be filled in spirit. Then Ephesians 6.18 says, pray at every time in spirit. So this shows that the Lord's recovery is possible only in the mingled spirit. You know, Roman numeral 2 says this. It says, we need to live in the reality of the body of Christ by entering into the reality of the gospel of Mark through the spirit of reality. You know, I love John 16, 13, because it says, when the spirit of reality comes, he will guide you into all the reality. So we have an inner God in us He guides us into all the reality of his living in the four Gospels. He guides us into all the reality of himself as the unique God-man with a God-man living. We have a guide in us. The spirit of reality guides you into all the reality. Now, A says, the biography of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is also our biography, our history, with Peter as our representative. With Peter as our representative. Now, um, there were three sisters that went to the to the grave. Uh, they went to the grave. They loved the Lord Jesus so much. You, you know, one time I was reading this to Brother Lee, reading a message to Brother Lee, and uh, and it showed how the sisters went to the grave. And then they, they came back, and the brothers didn't believe them, you know. And Brother Lee said to me, he goes, Ed, the sisters love the Lord more than the brothers. <laughs> Do you believe that, sisters? Do you love the Lord more than the brothers? Amen. Amen's weak. 
Well, we need to be like the sisters. The brothers need to be like the sisters, right? We need to love the Lord to the uttermost. So they came to the, to the grave, and they said, how can we roll away the stone, you know, to see him, to see his, his body? Well, the stone was already rolled away, and there was an angel in there, and the body was gone, and the body was gone, and the angel said, he's not here, he's been resurrected. And uh, the angel said this, the angel in the form of a man said this to the sisters, But go tell his disciples, these are the two words I want you to get. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That's not in any other gospel. And Peter. We have a a booklet in our book room by Watchman Nee called And Peter. Peter remembered that. And Peter, because Peter denied the Lord three times. So the Lord gave him a special message. Go Go tell my disciples I have not given up on Peter and Peter. Especially I want you to tell Peter. So, um, one says, In the angel's message to the three sisters who discovered the resurrection of the slave Savior, the phrase, and Peter, is inserted only in Mark's record. The Gospel of Mark is considered to be a written account dictated by Peter and written down by his spiritual son. Two says, even though Peter had committed the great sin of denying the Lord three times, the Lord specifically mentioned him. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And Peter. That's the gospel. You know, uh, of course, I've got a number of verses on here. In Luke 15, we know that there's a, a parable of a shepherd He has a hundred sheep. He loses one sheep. And it says, he goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. I like the word until. He goes after the one which is lost until. That until can be a period of time, right? Until he finds it. And saints, we shouldn't have the attitude, well, this saint left the church and is distracted or or uh, is distracted from the church life, or is in a certain situation that's not so good, uh, we just won't pay any attention to him or her. Uh, if we do that, then we have 99 sheep left. And you might say, oh, we have 99. It d- doesn't matter. 99 or 100, we still have 99. Well, eventually you're going to have 98, because you didn't care for the one that was lost. So you don't care for the two which is lost. You have 98. Eventually, you're going to go down to 90. Why? Because you don't have a shepherding spirit. You don't have a cherishing and nourishing spirit to go after the one which is lost. Eventually, there's just going to be you and another sheep. And eventually, there's just going to be you and the shepherd. Because you don't have a spirit, the shepherding spirit of our Savior of our Savior God, the seeking spirit of our Savior God. And and anyway, we need the seeking and shepherding spirit of our Savior God. Now in John 21, we know that um, the Lord restored Peter's love for him. Peter denied the Lord three times, and the Lord asked, firstly, 
the disciples, uh, they, Peter said, I'm going fishing. In other words, Peter was so discouraged, he's, it is as if he said, I'm not going to be full time anymore. I'm going back to my old job. I'm going fishing. And a number of the disciples said, we're going with you. So they went fishing. We know they fished the whole night. They didn't catch anything. That's the best time for catching fish is in the nighttime. They couldn't catch anything. And then there was a man on the shore. And maybe about 100 yards away. Uh, and he said, he had, to, he had to project his voice to do this. He said, children, do you have anything to eat? Do you have any fish? And they said, no. You know, there's this conversation going on between them. and They don't know it's the Lord. And so the Lord says, put your net on the right side of the boat. So they cast their net on the right side of the boat. And there was so many fish in the net that they had to drag that net into the boat. And I like what John said to Peter. He said, it's the Lord. That's all he said. It's the Lord. And you know what Peter did? He just dove into the water. Right? I threw off his suit coat. He didn't have a suit coat on. But anyway, he threw off his outer vestment. And he dove into the water and he swam ashore. And the Lord had prepared breakfast for them. And uh, that, was a real, that was a real shepherding. You know, to, for the Lord to prepare breakfast for you, isn't that shepherding? That's shepherding. He prepared breakfast for them. They, didn't, they couldn't catch fish in the sea, but the Lord had fish for them on the land. The Lord can get fish for you anywhere, right? So he prepared breakfast for them, and he, taught, he asked Peter three times. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's the first question he asked them, because Peter said, even if these all deny you, I will never deny you. Uh, and so he was boasting in his spirituality. Now, just think if Peter hadn't failed the Lord. He, he wouldn't have been able to shepherd anyone. He would have, he would have just been proud. Uh, if he said, oh, I feel weak, he would say, turn to your spirit, or something like that. And then you go down even further, right? Uh, he, he, he wouldn't have been able to sympathize with people that had failed. People that have failed. So the Lord said, feed my lambs. And then he asked him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. Then he asked him again if he loved him. You see, three times Peter denied him. Three times the Lord asked him if he loved him. He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. So, brothers and sisters, this is really... I don't know how many of you will get this. I don't have the time to expound this. But the Lord needs to be our first love, right? Is the Lord your first love this morning? Amen. Okay, if he's your first love, that means he's everything to you. He's everything to you. Now, out of the first love, according to Revelation 2, 4, and 5, come the first works. And the first works are works that issue from our first love for the Lord. Well, in John 21, 15, and 17, what you see is the first love and the first works. You see Peter loving the Lord. That's the first love. Then you see the Lord telling him to shepherd his sheep, to feed his sheep, and to feed his lambs. That's the first works. 
So, brothers and sisters, when you love the Lord Jesus, spontaneously, you will want to shepherd other people. You will get your mind off of yourself. Your focus won't be you, me, I, myself. Your focus will be on other people, how you can shepherd other people to, uh, to love the Lord Jesus, to love the Lord Jesus. And, and saints, you might feel very low, but there's someone always lower than you are. Do you believe that? You might feel so down, but there's someone downer than you are, more down. One time I came home from work, and I, I, I was having a hard time, and it was real hard for me that day. And I just couldn't wait to get home and just shut the door. You know, in those days, you had the phone like, you, like this. I want to take the phone off the hook, you know. And, uh, of course, I didn't do that. But I came out of the car, and there was a brother sitting on my doorstep. And I went, oh, Lord Jesus. I realized he was there because he had a problem. And so I was like that neighbor that goes to the other neighbor in the Gospels and says, friend, lend me three loaves. So I had to go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me three loaves of the Spirit for this brother. You know, it's midnight. I don't have any food. So I walked up to this brother, and the brother said, Ed, I'm thinking about leaving the church life, he told me. And so we had a lot of fellowship, and through that fellowship, both of us got shepherded. I got shepherded, and he got shepherded. When you shepherd people, you're the first one that gets shepherd, shepherded. Am I right? You take care of the young people, you're the first one that gets shepherded. Okay, now, um, three says, and Peter means and you. You can put your name in there, and Peter, and Ed. And Peter. Now, now, brother, what is your name again? I just met you. What is your... Brian? Yeah. So you can put your name in there, Brian. And Brian. Go tell my disciples, and Brian. Or and Ed. And Peter means and you. Now, who is you? You who have failed like Peter. Revealing that although we fail the Lord, it is impossible for him to forget us, forsake us, Give up on us or not love us. If we fall, he will not desert us, and he can make us rise up again for his economy. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I shall by no means give you up, neither by any means shall I abandon you. If you look at it, there's an amplified translation that says this. For God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up, nor leave you without support. Listen to this. Then it says this. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. So in the Greek, there's that kind of emphasis. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless. So the Lord never gives up on us, and we should never give up on people. The fact that we're here in this room this morning means the Lord hasn't given up on us. Right? He never gives up on us. Okay, Proverbs 24, 16. It says a righteous man falls seven times. It doesn't say a righteous man never falls. A righteous man never makes mistakes. 
A brother in the training, he's perfect. He never makes mistakes. Brother, what is your name? Christian. Christian, do you ever make mistakes? Yes. Well, I do too. I do too. So, uh, uh, but you fall seven times. Let's say you fall seven times. That's the number of completion. It says he, he falls seven times and he rises up again. Isn't that wonderful? He falls seven times. One, two, three, maybe four. You say, oh, I give up. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to raise you up. That's the number of completion. Then, then Song of Songs 2, 8, 6 says, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. So the Lord sets us as a seal on his heart of love and sets us as a seal on his arm of strength and power. Now, when you, when you get set as a seal on his heart of love, you become a part of his heart. You become a part of his arm. It's really wonderful. Now, B says, and I, I shared this, Mark 6, 45-52 reveals that we need to seek out the journey, the course that the Lord has ordained for us according to his perfect will and to enjoy him as our heavenly minister and high priest, the one who is interceding for us and sustaining us to finish the course in living a heavenly life on earth for the reality of the body of Christ. Now, of course, the Lord, in the book of Hebrews, it says he always lives to intercede for us. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I consider my life of no account in order that I may finish my course. Each of us are members of the body of Christ, and we have a general course that we run, a general Christian race course. But we all have a, a specific race course to run as a particular member of the body of Christ. And we need to pray, Lord, may I finish my course. May I finish my course, Lord. At the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I have finished the course. I have finished the course. Okay, now under this one says, from the ascension of Christ to his coming again, the world is in a long night. The night is far advanced. Our boat is in the midst of the sea. And we still have not reached the destination of our journey. Now, two says, we need to realize that the journey of faithful believers is one that is contrary to the wind. And they experience being distressed as they row. So what should we do? We need to take the Lord into our boat. And what is our boat? Our boat is our married life, our family life, our business Take the Lord into your boat and enjoy peace with him on the journey of human life. You know, um, sometimes I get really, I don't know what the word is, but I get very concerned when I see young couples having problems in their married life. You know, they both went to the training. I won't say who, uh, but they both went to the training. Then, then they become... 30-ish, 40-ish, and then they have problems. They have problems. They can't, it seems one of them is talking this way, the other one is talking this way. They can't communicate. Well, why? They haven't taken the Lord into the boat of their married life. We need to tell the Lord specifically, Lord, I take you into the boat of my married life, Lord. 
If we do, then we will we'll be, we'll be at peace on our journey to finish our course. Now, three says, In these days, just before the dawn of the Lord's coming out, coming, we need to stand against the wearing out tactics of Satan. Satan wants to wear us out. And he does this gradually. He doesn't do it all at once. He does it gradually. You may have loved the Lord so much, and gradually, like a light dimmer, you know, he doesn't turn out the lights all at once. You would know. But he does it like a light dimmer, a little bit at a time. And before you know it, your love is less for the Lord than it used to be, you see? And so your consecration isn't what it used to be. Don't let the devil wear out your consecration. Keep your consecration fresh and up to date with the Lord. Okay, so we stand against the wearing out tactics of Satan. We're empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And we receive mercy from the Lord to be faithful to take the journey that he has ordained, the journey that he has ordained for the building up of his body, his bride, to bring him back. C says, in order to enter into the reality of the gospel of Mark, we need to repent, to have a change of mind with regret for the past and a turn for the future. To repent is to turn from all things other than God to God himself. Don't think repentance is just for unbelievers. All of us as believers need to repent. It's to turn from all things other than God to God himself. Now one says on the negative side, to repent before God is not only to repent of sins and wrongdoings, but also to repent of the world and its corruption, which usurp and corrupt people whom God created for himself, and to repent of our God-forsaking life in the past. In the past. Two says, on the positive side, it is to turn to God in every way and in everything for the fulfillment of his purpose in creating man. It is a repentance unto God, and it is to repent and turn to God. If you look at Revelation 2 and 3, now these epistles in Revelation 2 and 3 were written to believers, and the Lord, through the Apostle John, repeatedly tells his people to repent. These are believers. And so to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Pergamos, to the church in Thyatira, to the church in Sardis, and to the church in Laodicea, he tells them to repent. So we all need to repent. It is to repent and turn to God. I read two, right? Okay, now we'll go to three. Repentance unto life, unto God's organic salvation in life, is a gift given to us from the exalted Christ. We need to pray, Lord, give me this gift of repentance unto life. That means repentance that results in life. Now look at four. I like this point very much. Christ, as the kindness of God, leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is leading you to repentance. When we shepherd one another, We need to have God's kindness in us for one another. Not our kindness, but God's kindness. Because God's kindness leads us to repentance. It leads us to turn from everything other than God to God himself. So this, the kindness of God leads us to repentance so that according to his mercy, we can be reconditioned, remade, and remodeled 
with him as life. I still remember uh, I took a course in life and teachings of Jesus in college, and I was an unbeliever. The school I went to was not a Bible school. It was a secular college, but it was an elective. And so I took this course, and this course, one of my best friends, he made straight A's. He said, Ed, do not take this class. It's the only B I've made in my whole college career. He said, it's very, very difficult. So I said, I still want to take it. I want to find out who this Jesus is, you know. So uh, I took the course. One day we were having a class discussion. There were a lot of Christians in that, cor- in that course. And they found out how hard it was. You know, they weren't getting A's. You know, there's archaeology, all kind of things we, we, we covered in that class. And uh, uh, anyway, we were, we were discussing Matthew 5 through 7. And I raised my hand uh, to participate in the class discussion. Now, I'm an unbeliever. And I used to like to get to give it to Christians. You know what I mean. To, I was like Saul of Tarsus on the campus. You know what I mean? So I said, Dr. Lindquist, I said, no person could ever do what's in Matthew 5 through 7. No person. Actually, I was correct. I didn't realize I was correct until later. <laughs> you know, you can't do that in your natural life, right? Turn the other cheek. Someone hits you on the right cheek. You turn the left cheek. Someone asks you to go, go with them for a mile. You go the extra mile. Uh, and I said, besides, if you did what Matthew 5 through 7 tells you to do, people would walk all over you. And the Christians in the class, they got so upset when I said those things. And I was like giving myself five. All right. You know what? I didn't do it. You know what I mean? But I, but I was like, and but I enjoyed Dr. Lindquist so much. He was he was a brilliant man. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a professor emeritus. He believed in the Lord Jesus, and he just said this. He said, "Now wait a minute, Mr. Marx has a good point." And I went, "Oh, I have a good point," <laughs> and that cherished me so much. He could have argued with me intellectually and, you know, he could have cut me down to size, but he didn't do that. He exhibited the kindness of God to me. And the kindness of God exhibited through him eventually led to my repentance. Now, uh, D says, in order to enter into the reality of the gospel mark, we need to hear him. And see Jesus only. One says we need to take the take heed to the way we hear the word of the Lord, asking the Lord to give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the churches. The measure that can be given to us by the Lord depends on the measure of our hearing. Two says we need to have a private and intimate time with the Lord so that He can infuse us with His element to recover our sight. We all need a further recovery so that we can see all things clearly. Roman numeral 3 says, We need to live in the reality of the body of Christ according to the bird's eye view of the reality in Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, which unveils a full picture of the slave Savior serving fallen sinners as a collective person with himself as their all-inclusive salvation. The life of the Lord Jesus as revealed in Mark is the reality 
substance, and pattern of God's New Testament economy. Then under this one says, uh, you know, uh, here Simon's mother-in-law was lying down with a fever and uh, the Lord healed her. And so after he healed her, it says, she, she rose up and she served them. So when we experience some inner healing of the Lord, it's so that we can serve him. You know, but, but a fever uh, typifies the temper, your temper. When you, when, you, when you have an outburst of temper, that means you have a fever. Now, I don't think there's anyone in this room who hasn't had an outburst of temper at least once. At least one. Or maybe you held it in. Maybe you held it in. Uh, but uh, sometimes we have outbursts of temper. Now, why do we have outbursts of temper? When we do, we have a spiritual fever. Now, what is, why do we have a fever? The first reason is subjectivity. Subjectivity. That means this. Subjectivity means that everything about us is based on or influenced by our personal feelings tastes, or opinions. In other words, uh, whatever comes to us is based on our personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. And we won't listen to any other, any other person's tastes, feelings, or opinions. Our tastes, feelings, and opinions are the right ones. You see, that's how we feel. So if someone does not agree with us or follow our way, we become angry. We become angry. That's where temper comes from. Temper, the second place temper comes from is pride, where we think highly of ourselves, where we consider ourselves better than others. Uh, in 3 John 9, it said concerning Diotrephes that he loved to be first among the brothers. That's terrible to love to be first among the brothers. That is, that is pride. Now, the third thing is self-love, self-love. What is self-love? Self-love means the most important person in the world is you. Is you. That's how you feel. The most important person in the world is yourself. So you need, someone should always serve you the best food. The best food. If you like, uh, uh, if you like Kung Pao chicken, they should serve you Kung Pao chicken. Right? Uh, so you always want the best food. You always want the best house. You always want the best car. You always want to stay in the best hotel. If others don't pamper your, pamper you, pamper your self-love, you lose your temper. You lose your temper. Why did you lose your temper? Because of your self-love. Now the fourth thing, the reason why we lose our temper is love of material things. Love of material things. Let's say we have a favorite glass or a favorite object in our house. And uh, a brother comes by. He's like a bull in a china closet. He, he, he bumps that glass and it, it falls on the floor and the glass breaks. Uh, and then we lose our temper. Why do we lose our temper? Because of our love of material things. We didn't love that thing more than the Lord Jesus. We wouldn't lose our temper. We'd say, "No problem, brother." We just sweep up the remains of what what he broke, and 
If he did it by accident, it's no problem. But we need to be healed of our temper, healed of a fever. Now, two says leprosy is the most contaminating and damaging disease, causing its victim to be isolated from God and from men. The cleansing of the leper signifies the recovering of the sinner to fellowship with God and with men. And all these portions indicate this, which is very, very good. These portions, you can read them later. Now, three says, the paralytic signifies a sinner who is paralyzed by sin, one who is unable to walk and move before God. Through the forgiveness of our sins in Christ's judicial redemption, we are able to walk and move by the Spirit in God's organic salvation. Now, in Mark 2, 1 through 12, you have a wonderful story, to me, of a real vital group. This group is in a house. They're meeting with the Lord Jesus. And there's, there's, there's four men outside who really want to get into the meeting. The meeting is full. It's standing room only. You know, somehow, the Pharisees and scribes got into that meeting. They got there early, not to be healed, but to see if they could find something to accuse the Lord of. So they were there. But these men, they couldn't get in. So they were desperate for the paralyzed man that they, were, that they wanted the Lord to touch. So they went up to the roof. Can you imagine that? They went up to the roof. Now, just think if someone went up to your roof and took stuff off of your roof. right? Anyway, they dug through the roof and they, they lowered that paralytic down right in front of the Lord Jesus. Now, just think if this happened now, I would say quit disturbing the meeting. Have a seat. You know what I mean? But the Lord didn't do that. The Lord didn't do that. He said, these, these people are so desperate. He touched the paralytic, and he said, child, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And, of course, the scribes said, this person is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except one God? And then the Lord said this. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your mat and walk. Well, it's easier, easier to say your sins are forgiven. But it's harder to say, rise up and take up your mat and walk. It's harder to say that. So it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. He said to the paralytic, to you I say, rise, take up your mat and go to your house. And he rose immediately, took up the mat and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, I like what they said, we have never seen anything like this, exclamation point. We've never seen anything like this. That's how the Lord is when we come to meet as groups. Okay, now four says the flow of blood, the issue of blood, signifies a life that cannot be retained. By touching the Lord... His divine power is transfused through the perfection of his humanity into us to become our healing. The God who dwells in unapproachable light became touchable in the slave Savior through his humanity for our salvation and enjoyment. A woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She said, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. 
there was a big crowd around the Lord pressing around him. And this woman somehow, she, she, she got up to, the, to where she could touch the Lord in the middle of this crowd. And she touched the fringe of his garment and she was healed immediately. And the Lord said, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples said, Lord, everybody's touching you. Why do you say who touched me? Well, we need to touch the Lord in a way that his divine element is infused into our being. See, every morning we should touch him in that way. Now, B says, after the healing of the entire person, there is the Lord's exposure and cleansing of the real inner being, the heart. The Lord says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Saints, we do need to honor the Lord with our lips, but our heart needs to be turned to the Lord. The Lord sees our heart. The Lord sees our heart this morning. So our heart should be turned to him, right? Then we honor him with our lips out of the abundance of our heart, which is Christ. Now, C says, in addition to this healing, there are three feedings by the Lord. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the Gentiles as the pet dogs under the table, and the feeding of 4,000. Can you imagine the Gentiles are not just dogs, they're pet dogs. Pet dogs under the table. And they, they enjoy the Lord as much as the, the chosen Jewish people. Actually, the, the, the chosen ones mostly just push the Lord off the table. And then the pet dogs, you know, I have a pet dog. And if anything comes off the table, he gets it. Sometimes he's sitting there like this at the end of the table, just waiting for someone to do this or do this. Well, the Gentiles were like that. And they, they ate the Lord as their spiritual food. Then when you eat the Lord as your spiritual food, you graduate from being under the table to being at the table. To being at the table. All right, now, um, I need to go on because of time. Uh, D says, after this collective person is healed, cleansed within, and fed by the Lord, he needs the specific healing of his listening organ, speaking organ, and seeing organ. He says, now on the Mount of Transfiguration, his ears are open to hear the Lord Jesus as the Father's Son, the Beloved, and his eyes are open to see Jesus only, to see that he is the unique and universal replacement to be the unique constituent of the new man. Now, F says, the Lord then brings his followers as a collective person into his all-inclusive death and his all-surpassing resurrection, so that they may enjoy him in his all-transcending ascension as their life and life supply. The Lord of all, God's Christ, the head over all things to the church, the head of the body, the glorified one, the enthroned one, the one who is above all, and the one who fills all in all, to bring forth the new man as the reality of the kingdom of God consummating in the new Jerusalem. Okay, now G says, Finally, the Lord as the resurrected and ascended Savior, slave Savior, preaches the gospel through his disciples as his reproduction for his universal spreading until he comes again to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Praise the Lord, that's the last point. We did an Amtrak tour 
of the whole gospel of Mark. So, this is living in the reality of the body of Christ according to the bird's eye view of the reality in Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Isn't this marvelous? And you could take this outline home and get into the verses further. Uh, There's a lot of really good verses on here to back up every point. Okay, Abraham, what should we do now, brother?